Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 8, it says, Now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were greatly afraid. Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. For behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign to you. You'll find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. For centuries, Christians have celebrated what's been called the season of the advent. It's first mentioned in writings about 380 AD in the Iberian Peninsula, in the area that you and I call Spain. And it was at that time that they set aside time for fasting and reflection prior to celebrating the nativity. It wasn't until the fourth century that a date for the birth of Jesus was established, but the birth was floated from about 150 AD by people who had access to the records and the genealogy. But the date remained a point of contention between the Eastern Church, who affirmed January 6th as the day of the birth of Jesus to be celebrated, and then the Western Church, which affirmed December 25th. But by AD 581, most churches we're beginning to make pre-Christian preparations. The four Sundays before Christmas became known as Advent Sundays. They became times of preparation, a, a season of penance with attention to meeting the Savior. And people would confess their sin. They would evaluate their hearts. They would repent of sin. And then they would walk a highway that they called the highway of holiness after Isaiah chapter 35. So Advent became a season of hope. Israel's prophets pointed to the coming of a Messiah. There was a longing for deliverance. It became a season of reflection and meditating on the events of, of Jesus' birth and those involved in that birth. It became a season of joy and music and food preparation and gift giving. But the real joy came in the knowledge that a joyful God was bringing salvation to needy sinners so that they could become his children. And so it was a season of light where congregations and families would add what they called advent wreaths or advent logs. And they were meant to bring light to the celebration. And remember, Jesus is the light of the world in John chapter 8, verse 12, and in John chapter 9. And so they would light candles, they would light lights to, to in a, a very real sense, push back against the darkness. 
that season would end on Christmas Eve. And so Luke's gospel provides the backdrop of what came to be called the Advent season. We're given a glimpse, a tiny peek into the first few moments of our Savior's birth. And the birth of Jesus will draw Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem, away from Nazareth. The birth of Jesus will draw angels from heaven. The birth of Jesus will draw shepherds out of their field. And all of that is interesting. But perhaps the more important thing is, where will Christmas draw you? Where have you come from and where are you going? For my family, it's going to be a great time of celebration. All three of my boys and their wives will be here together with me. One of my sons will be drawn from Texas and another son will be drawn from South Carolina. But, but they're drawn in the hopes of family and fun and celebration and grace and mercy and fun. And some of you will be drawn not so much from a place, but from a position of your heart. Some people will be drawn from a place of emptiness and darkness, perhaps even fear. Can you imagine the amazement of the angels who leave heaven and come to the earth and watch as God the creator is born a creature the son eternal immortal the word made flesh as John describes it the word becomes flesh and dwells among us a human vulnerable speechless a baby Paul the Apostle reflecting on this subject in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 verse 9 is, is overcome. And he writes, great is the mystery of godliness. God was made manifest in the flesh. And for those who don't really believe that, you have almost an impossible theological burden. In the first service, I couldn't remember for love or money. I, I, I held out my hand and I said, just hold out your hand and spell H-A-N-D-S. God and Jesus are one and the same. How do we know? Hold out your hand in case you forget. H, they share the same honors. A, they have the same attributes. In, they share the same names. D, they do the same deeds. S, they sit on the same seat. If Jesus isn't God, then why does he share his honor, his attributes, his names, his deeds, and even his own seat? When Paul wrote, great is the mystery of godliness, God is made manifest in the flesh. And so it becomes a sense in which as we read the text and we see what the angels do, their response is wonder and worship. And so look when the angels arrive in verse 8, look what it says. Now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. The angels arrive. 
And what's interesting is when heaven splits open and the curtain is rent, the angels don't go to Augustus's throne room in Rome. They don't even appear to the religious elites in Jerusalem. The angels appear to country shepherds. These were humble men. And for the most part in that culture and, and society, these were despised men. Because of their work, they were often considered ceremonially unclean. And the care and the custody and the protection of flocks, the watching of sheep, and then the giving of birth to lambs would often render them unclean. And that means they were not permitted to go to the temple. They wouldn't have been permitted for the most part to go to the synagogue. And because they were seen so lowly, and because they couldn't participate in worship or sacrifice, they were looked down on. Those religious people who devoted themselves to the study of the Torah or of the Jewish law, who, who gave themselves to attending to the ceremonies surrounding sacrifice, looked down on these men. And I find this very, very interesting. The reason, because Abraham was a shepherd and Isaac was a shepherd and Jacob was a shepherd and David was a shepherd. And sometimes we come to places in our life where we're not particularly proud of who our parents were, what they did. But the shepherds speak of the goodness of God. And the shepherds see what few people are permitted to see. Angels. And so now all of a sudden we discover when Jesus refers to himself as the good shepherd in John chapter 10, verse 11, and then again in verse 14. But look what the text is saying. The shepherds were keeping watch over their flock by night. You don't have to be a genius to figure this out. They're shepherds. What are they watching? Yeah, this is simple. They're watching sheep. And sheep, when they become pregnant, what do they give birth to? Lambs. They're watching their sheep. They're tending their sheep. But have you ever stopped to pause and ask yourself a question about this text? What are they going to do with those sheep? And what are they going to do with those lambs? You see, these are the shepherds of Bethlehem preparing the flocks and the lambs which are going to be offered in sacrifice at the temple. I'm going to suggest to you that perhaps some of them were preparing lambs for sacrifice. And who better for angels to reveal the fact that another lamb was coming, the ultimate lamb, the ultimate sacrifice, the one who would be offered in the future. And look what happens as time and space are rent open. In verse 9 it says, And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were greatly afraid. We read that in our text, but in the original language, make no mistake about it, it translates a word that means terrified. And it makes perfect sense that fear would flood the shepherd's heart. 
the presence of a supernatural creature, an interdimensional being where you see time and space ripped open and the glory of God shining in an, in an incredible light, by the way. In the Old Testament, when an angel appeared, it was usually for one of two reasons. Number one, to render judgment. That means you're going to die. Number two, because they're going to escort you to wherever it is you're going. This might come as a shock and a surprise to you, but I really believe with all of my heart that most of you have probably seen an angel and you didn't even know it. But I guarantee that each and every one of you will see an angel in the not too distant future. The angel will show up. And when the angel shows up, it's because you're no longer going to be here for very long. By the way, angels are mentioned 273 times in 34 biblical books. They're usually invisible. Romans chapter 1 verse 18. Colossians chapter 2 verse 18. Revelation chapter 19 verse 10. When they did show up, it was usually to render assistance or provide a message but always to glorify God. And so when it says, and behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, that word glory is sometimes a word that gets lost in the religious conversation. But the word glory is one word that describes all of the things that I just talked about God. Remember I said the honors of God and the attributes of God and the names of God and the deeds of God and the throne of God. And when you talk about all of those things, if you were to put them in one basket labeled glory, you could put all of those things in that one word. It's the one word that's supposed to describe everything that we know that God has revealed about himself. And there's a reason why they're terrified. We're familiar with the old King James, where it says, fear not. It's used three times in Luke's Christmas narrative, four more times in the gospel. I think it's interesting that Dr. Luke, our beloved physician friend, uses that expression seven times. Times. We know that he's a dear doctor because in Colossians chapter 4, verse 4, Paul calls him our dear doctor. And doctors often bring comfort, don't they? Doctors are supposed to tell the truth, and Dr. Luke places in the angel's mouth the words, Don't be afraid. But I want you to pause for just a moment because I want you to think about what you're reading. Fear was a big problem when Jesus came into the world. In Matthew's gospel, chapter 4, verse 16, he quotes Isaiah, chapter 9, verse 2, where it sets the stage. It says that the people were living in darkness in the land of the shadow of death. Fear was a terrible enemy. 
Death was a terrible enemy. People were held in bondage to fear, according to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. And the pagan religions of the world provided little comfort and little hope, just like the philosophies of today. You might have friends who are philosophical naturalists, who are atheists or agnostics. You might have friends who, like in the California school system, I recently heard that they wanted to ban any mention of the gospel or God or Jesus during the holiday season. Why? Well, it's too religious. Uh, Okay, so now why don't you tell me what you have to offer? What happens when you die? You're dead. That's it. You're extinct. You're gone. Merry Christmas. The reason why I'm even bringing this up is because it's so important. In the pagan world in which Jesus is born, if I could take you and visit funeral places, graveyards, in Spain, in Rome, in Greece, we could go to different graveyards and you can see in antiquity that dates back to the fourth century and the third century, gravestones marked with a sense of hopelessness and darkness. Fear was a huge problem because hope wasn't offered Terror, fear, darkness. For many of you, you know that this is a difficult time for so many people and so many families. In San Bernardino, California, where I spent seven years as a, as a caseworker and a supervisor of the department, families woke up over the Inland Empire in their first Christmas without their son, without their daughter, without their husband, without their wife. In a post, Jim Dennison addressed the issue of terrorism. He wrote about what should be our response to terror. He writes, quote, the goal of terrorists is obviously to terrorize. He quotes John Lair, and he says he's right. The real goal of terror isn't to kill people, but to kill thought, to so demoralize a society that it implodes from within, unquote. And so it is in our culture and society where they extend to you the offer to give up hope, give up grace, give up love, give up forgiveness, give up reconciliation. Jim Dennison writes, so how do we refuse to be terrorized? He suggests that we name our fears, put them into words, separate them from each other, lest they feed on one another. He says, be specific. He then says, give your fears to your father. Put them in your heavenly father's hand. Ask God to show you the next steps to take. Be confident in the father's providence and provision and power. So think about this. In When Gabriel asks Mary to risk her future and perhaps her life by submitting to God in order to bring to the world a son and hope, she says, how is this even possible? I've never even known a man. I've never been with a man. And the angel's response is, nothing is impossible with God. So Mary responds, behold, 
I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be done according to your word in Luke chapter 1, verse 37 and 38. She says, I'm willing to participate in God's plan for hope. But some people in your family may not be willing. But I want to encourage you to encourage them. I need to ask you a very hard question and then remind you of its answer. What do people living in darkness face? Darkness, fear, difficulty. But I guarantee you, people living in darkness long for light. People living in fear long for hope. In the New Testament, both Jesus and the angels invited the people to listen. And he said, fear not. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus says, do not fear, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows in Matthew 10, 31. Don't be afraid. You're valuable to God. God will provide for you. The angel told Zacharias, don't be afraid. Your prayers have been heard, Luke 1, 13. And to Mary in Luke 1, 30, don't be afraid, Mary, because you found favor with God. And then here in verse 10, the angel says to the shepherds, don't be afraid because I bring you good tidings of great joy which will be to all people. The message isn't restricted to the shepherd. He says, I'm bringing you good news. This good news was never meant to be kept to yourself. It's for everyone you know and then everyone that they know and then everyone that they know. Both the angel and Jesus himself then invites you to do what the angel did. Share the message. Share the message of hope. In Luke chapter 5, verse 10, Jesus speaks to James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon, and he says, don't be afraid. From now on, you're going to catch men. I want you to think about all of these do not be afraids. Don't be afraid. God will answer your prayers. Don't be afraid. God has made a provision for salvation and assurance. Don't be afraid. You're valuable. And the news was meant to generate joy. And the reason why all of this becomes important is because so many people are afraid that the message may not be true or that they may not be accepted or that they might be the exception to the rule. Almost every year I get a Christmas card. And almost every year there's one particular Christmas card that I look forward to getting where it says, if the world needed, if what the world needed most was an educator, then God would have sent a teacher. If what the world needed most was an economist, then God or money, then God would have sent an economist. If what the world needed most was just add what it is sickness or healing, then God would have sent a physician. But what the world needed most was a savior, someone who could forgive our sin and reconcile us to God and bring us peace. No wonder one of the last things that Jesus says in Revelation chapter 1 verse 17 is, don't be afraid. I'm the first and the last. 
Think about that. I'm the first advent. I'm the second advent. If advent means anything at all, the coming of Jesus, the presence of Jesus means the absence of fear. And you're the only one with that message. And look what it says in verse 11. For there's born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. The Jewish people had waited for centuries for a Savior. God gave a promise in the book of Genesis that the woman would give birth to a child. March through history. Abraham is given a promise that a Savior would come. Isaac and Jacob. Judah is given a promise. David is given a promise that a Savior would come. Almost invariably, when I go to Israel, my Jewish friends will say to, to me, even now the Jewish people are looking for a Savior. Even now the Jewish person will say, when the Savior comes, I have one question for him. What's that? Is this your first visit or is this your second visit? Is this the first time or the second time? Some were looking for a physical healer who would deliver them from sickness and pain. Others were looking for a political leader who would deliver them from gross government. And presidential debates. Jesus is going to provide deliverance and salvation. But God's plan would be way far reaching. It's going to include the deliverance from sin and the establishment of a spiritual kingdom. Look what the angel says. There is born to you this day in the city of David. That's Bethlehem. Look his words. A savior. His words. Christ. His words. The Lord. Jesus is going to pay the price for sin. He's going to open the way for peace with God. Jesus is going to offer something more than just simply a temporary solution, a temporary peace, a temporary healing, a temporary political relief. Jesus is going to offer what everyone needs, a new heart, a new beginning. J. Sidlow Baxter wrote, Bethlehem and Golgotha, the manger and the cross, the birth and death, they must always be seen together, unquote. And he's exactly right. We can't talk about the city of David without talking about the city of Jerusalem. We can't talk about the manger without also talking about a cross. And look what it says in verse 12, and this will be the sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. This is the angel's message. I want you to reread it. And this will be the sign to you. Why do you suppose the angel's saying that? How are the shepherds going to recognize the child? How are they going to recognize him? But I have a different question for you. How will you recognize him? How will you recognize him? 
How will you know that this is God's solution to the problem that you face? How will you recognize the child? Sarah sent me a text at four o'clock in the morning. At, at seven, they brought the kids by and Anthony and Sarah went to the hospital. Can you imagine if they said, come to the hospital and see your new grandbaby? And I said, how will I recognize the child? By the way, they might say, this is the sign, maternity. Now, again, if I go to a hospital and I go to the maternity ward, what are the chances of me seeing a baby? Fairly good. How will I know this is the Geraci baby? I want to ask you a different question. Do you suppose these shepherds had seen babies? Yes. How many babies in the first century were wrapped in swaddling clothes? I'm going to suggest to you many of them might have been. They're wrapped in linens. They're wrapped in baby clothes. Shepherds would have seen lots of babies wrapped in lots of baby clothes. But this baby's no ordinary baby. This baby's the king of the universe. This baby's the Lord of life. This, Lord, this baby is the savior, Christ. And Lord, how many saviors, Christs, and lords have you seen wrapped in linen? I'm gonna to suggest to you that the second part of the sign isn't just simply that it's a baby and that the baby is wrapped in clothes, but it's the baby's location in a manger. Now we go a little bit further. In the first century, even among poor people, how likely is it to find a child in an animal's feeding trough? I'm gonna say that that's fairly unlikely. But it's more than just the location. It's the humility, it's the indignity, which makes the message all the more startling because we're talking about something glorious. We're talking about a baby who's a savior. We're talking about the baby who is Christ and we're talking about the baby that's Lord and then this humility and in this indignity, it makes the message all the more startling because the savior, the Lord, the Christ doesn't make his way into the world with the angels to rule and reign, but rather in humility. And it's supposed to make your head spin. The creator in a cow's crib. The savior in a stall. The Lord in a cave. This is the incarnation. This is God coming into the world. And what do you suppose the shepherd saw? A baby wrapped in swaddling clothes? I want you to think for just a moment because these were shepherds familiar with the daily duties of attending sheep and sheep giving birth to lambs and lambs being prepared for the future. The shepherds see the angels the shepherd hear the angels. 
but they also believe the angels. And they search for the child diligently. A child in a manger, in a feeding trough. A child in a place of indignity. A child in a, in a place of humility. A child disconnected from what you would normally associate with life and with supremacy and with glory and with power. And now all of a sudden you begin to understand the Christmas message. And the shepherds were directed by the angels to find the newborn savior for themselves. Wouldn't it be great if you could find the savior for your husband, for your wife, for your children, for your grandchildren, for your neighbors and your, your friends? Wouldn't it be great if, if they go, how do I find God? How do I find the savior? How do I find grace? How do I find forgiveness? How do I find mercy? Where do I look? Where can I go? And you go, you don't have to go anywhere. I'll find him for you. It doesn't work that way. You can't find Jesus for them. They have to find Jesus for themselves. I want you to think about this for just a moment. In the New Testament, the angel's message is always on the focus of the person of Jesus. When Zechariah and Elizabeth were told of a future birth of John the Baptist and that John was going to play an important role in the preparation of the Messiah who would come, when the angel appears to Mary, favored by God, it's to be the instrument of Jesus' birth. Joseph is encouraged by an angel to take Mary as his wife so that he would provide for the family and protect the family, that he could be the provider and the protector for Jesus. But in each and every instance, whether it's Zechariah and Elizabeth, whether it's Mary, whether it's Joseph, whether it's these shepherds, all of them are always directed by angels to find Jesus. Don't you find that interesting? The message is never about themselves. The message is always about Jesus. And so the sign is the sun. You'll find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And look at the angel's adoration in verse 13. It says, and suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host. How much is a multitude? It's a lot of people. In the book of Revelation, when the multitude is described, when John saw a multitude of angels, he gives the number, it's 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands and thousands. That's a lot of angels. All of a sudden, the curtain is rent. The multitude appears. They're praising God. What's the largest gathering you've ever been at? 1,000 people, 10,000 people, 80,000 people like at Bronco Stadium? If you've ever been in a place where there's been 100,000 people and they all have one thing to say, it's pretty impressive. And can you imagine if a million 
angels start saying the same thing. The multitude of the angels have been called God's singing army. William MacDonald called this heaven's pent up ecstasy broke forth. All of a sudden, all of the angelic beings appear on this side of our reality and they all begin to praise God. Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. Some people will argue, well, you know, according to the Bible, there's no evidence in the Bible um, that you should celebrate Christmas. But the angels are. They're celebrating the birth of Jesus. The angels in heaven are celebrating the birth of Jesus. And they're saying glory to God. On earth, peace, goodwill toward men. This is an old message, an old song, old praise. We find the angels praising, worshiping extending an invitation of peace and goodwill toward men. And so is it really all that wrong for us to praise God, to worship him, and extend an invitation of peace and goodwill toward men? Earlier in our worship service, we sang this song. We sang chapter 2, verse 14. Glory in excelsis Deo. You were singing Luke chapter 2, verse 14 in Latin. You think I'm a nerd? Listen to you guys. In the ancient world, Rome established what was called a temporary peace. It was called the Pax Romana. It began about 26 BC by Augustus. It continued to about 14 in the Christian era, in the common era, or what some people call AD. It was a time of relative tranquility in the ancient world. It was an incomplete peace, but yet there was this sense of social and political tranquility, but it was an imperfect peace. The truth is we can't be at peace with others while storms brew in the human heart. And so when the angels sing Gloria in excelsis Deo, it catches the full significance. Read it in verse 14. When the angels sing glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. They are glorifying God. They're glorifying God for all that this birth means because the angels know that when this child is born, the child is going to live and the child is going to speak and the child is going to die and the child is going to come back to life. And the angels' adoration and glory are all linked to the life, the ministry, and the message of Jesus. Here's what they're suggesting. That the life of Jesus in every single way would glorify God. When I was a young man, the, the young president, John F. Kennedy, said, and I quote, 
But peace does not rest in the chadas and covenants alone. He said, it lies in the hearts and minds of all people. So let us not rest all our hopes on parchment and paper. Let us strive to build peace, a desire for peace, a willingness to work for peace in the hearts and minds of all our people. I believe that we can. I believe the problems of human destiny are not beyond the reach of human beings. And the president's words were noble and they were hopeful. But this is not the Bible's assessment the Bible doesn't say that peace with God is possible apart from the gospel, apart from Christ, apart from what the New Testament says. The Bible doesn't teach that human peace will simply come because humans want it. How is peace possible? Apart from peace with God, the philosopher Baruch Spinoza said, quote, peace is not an absence of war. It is a virtue. It is a state of mind. It's a disposition for benevolence and confidence and justice. G.A. Stuttart Kennedy said, quote, peace does not mean the end of all striving. Joy does not mean the drying of our tears. Peace is the power that comes to souls arriving up to the light where God himself appears. And so for the person who says, I want joy and I want peace and I want goodwill, these are all noble, wonderful things to want but problematic without God's Christ, without the Savior. Peace is only possible on God's terms. We could theologically debate whether or not angels sing. The text doesn't say they're singing. But when a million voices sing together or even say together, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. You've got to understand that this is going to rock the world. You know, in 1864, our country was nearly torn apart, torn to pieces and destroyed by a civil war. Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, in the midst of this gruesome war where 50,000 people would die in a single day, he wrote the poem Christmas Bells. What's remarkable about the poem isn't just what a, a, an amazing poem it is, but what's remarkable about it is the circumstances in which it was written. When the country is hurt and empty and torn, this is months before Lee surrenders to Grant at Appomattox. He writes, I heard the bells on Christmas Day, their old familiar carols play, and wild and sweet the words repeat of peace on earth, goodwill to men. 
and thought how, as the day had come, the belfries of all Christendom had rolled along the unbroken song of peace on earth, goodwill to men, till ringing, singing on its way, the world revolved from night to day, a voice, a chime, a chant sublime, of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Then from each black accursed mouth, the cannon thundered in the south, and with the sound, the carols drowned of peace on earth, goodwill to men. It was as if an earthquake rent the hearthstones of a continent and made forlorn the households born of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And in despair, I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Then pealed the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail, with peace on earth, goodwill to men. You weren't the first person who ever said, how can you say this? When there's so much pain and so many broken people, thoughtful people, hear the angel's adoration and wonder. And with Wordsworth Longfellow, they say, when will the wrong fail? When will the right prevail? When will peace come? And suffering end. We still await the Prince of Peace who comes for David's throne and when he sits upon that seat, peace finally finds a home. Peace is more than just the absence of conflict. It's, it's more than just the absence of fear. It's more than just the absence of suffering. It's the promise of the presence of Jesus. Billy Graham was right when he said, Christ alone can bring lasting peace. Peace with God, peace among men, peace in the nations, peace in our hearts. Chuck Colson, a few months before he died, was on my radio program, and we were talking about his new book at that time. And in that book, he, he wrote something remarkable. He said, on Christmas Day, 2,000 years ago, the birth of a tiny baby in an obscure village in the Middle East was God's supreme triumph over, of good over evil. And he was right. What are we to make of all of this? We're grateful for the angel's advent and announcement and adoration. And the angels would be the first to admit that Jesus is superior to them, that he's the creator, that he is God, that he is the savior, and that he's the king. C.S. Lewis understood this when he wrote, the central miracle asserted by Christian is the incarnation. They say that God became a man. That's exactly what we say. 
God became a man so that your heart and your sin and the problem that you face and the fear that you face and the absence of peace that you face and the darkness that you face will have a solution forever. God became a man, not just for any reason, but for a specific reason. To save man, to ransom man, to redeem man, to reconcile man. And that's why we talk about Emmanuel, God with us. God with us in our nature, God with us in our sorrow, God with us in our fear, God with us in our sorrow, God with us in the pain and in our life and in our punishment and in our grave. God with us who will come back to life. God with us in his advent and God with us in his second advent. And so, when people talk about peace, you can remind them of real peace. And when you look at the Christmas lights, your mind can go in a number of different places. To commercialism, apathy, indifference, distance from God, distance from Christ, distance from the gospel, or you can judge each light as a penetrating moment, a reminder that Jesus is the darkness and he's pushing and pressing the darkness away. Jesus, more light than we can learn, more wealth than we can treasure, more love than we can earn, more peace than we can measure. Because one child, one child, one child is born. Heavenly Father, we pray that, Lord, we can, with confidence, hear what you're saying that we don't have to be afraid. We don't have to be afraid of the darkness. And we don't have to be afraid when people tell us that we're in the midst of an economic collapse or a cultural breakdown. That Lord, we can with confidence remember that God's not dead, that right will prevail, that every single promise that the angel made will fully, finally, ultimately come true. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.